Barriers. There are three habits of mind that impede grasping the idea of the underworld as the psychic realm. Materialism. I have stressed the distinction between underground and underworld, and we have seen that the word unconscious tends to gloss over this distinction, giving a naturalistic cast to psychic events. There is an archetypal figure behind this perspective, one with as much historical influence upon our attitudes in psychology as in law, government, and language. We are Roman in mind, as well as in civilization. In ancient Rome, the goddess Tellus, who later became Terra Mater, was both maternally earthy and one of the lower world gods, presiding over the fields of nature and the realm of the dead. The psychological source of the general idea that Roman culture was materialistic and non-imaginative may well lie in Tellus, for what a difference between an underworld ruled by an invisible Hades and one belonging to Tellus, Terra Mater. Tellus has some curious char- characteristics. For one, she was not paired with a sky god, as is so often the case in myths. In fact, she had hardly any male associates at all. She was inseparable from Ceres, however, whose name connects with creation and increase, and not only with cereals. The two together intervene in all funeral rites as well as being goddesses of agricultural and human fecundity, including marriage. Most sacred to Tellus was a pregnant cow, a sacrifice with few parallels in the rituals of the world. The slaughter of the animal took place in mid-April, a festival of butchery, blood, meat, bowels, gestation, and increase amid the rich green growth of the rising crop. Death is here wholly envisioned within the cycle of fertility. No pneumatic world of spirit or essence opens below the earthy ground in which the body is inhumed. The Great Mother is not merely a stone statue in a museum. She is a modality of consciousness moving through the habits of her thought and feeling. She is our materialism. The common derivation of both matter and mater, mother, is neither an accident nor a joke. She is that modality of consciousness which connects all psychic events to material ones, placing the images of the soul in the service of physical tangibilities. Each time we take a dream up into life, we reinforce her domination. Every translation of a dream into the bread-and-butter issues of real flesh and blood is a materialism. Her role in psychology has been extraordinary, as if she were its sole god. I do not mean here only the continual return to the mother-child image as key to understanding the human soul, but even the sophisticated interpreters of a generation or two ago attributed everything to her.
rivers, oceans, vegetation and animals, love, life, and death. However now, using the careful application of Aristotle's method with dreams, the search for correct resemblances, we are able to recall that oceans and rivers belong to Okeanos and Poseidon, that Eros is also a male figure and force, that a lord of vegetation and zoetic life, and of childhood too, is Dionysus, and that even the earth itself can have, as in Egypt, at the historical roots of our symbolisms, a masculine personification. Not only religion begins, as many have said, as a reflection upon death. Psychology does it, too. For it is in the face of death that we ponder and go deep and sense soul, and then build our fantasies for housing it. Whether these be the ancient pyramids and sepulchres of religion, or the rituals and systems of modern psychology. If the soul is imagined to be an epiphenomenal vapor secreted by the brain or by nervous systems, or to result from a microscopic biochemical combination, and the dream is a reflection of the inside behavior of the body that is inside the behavior of social, historical, and physical fields of energy, then the philosophical perspective that best suits the soul and its dreams is materialism. The converse follows when we give an account of the dream's images and language by referring to other influences, other persons, sense impressions, past memories. We are in a materialism, although we may never have used reductive terms. Materialism may be sophisticated beyond hedonism, sensationalism, associationalism, behaviorism, and the other telltale signs by which we have been taught to recognize it. It occurs whenever we cannot accept a dream as an autog Thanos image, a sui genre invention of the soul. A dream is not made by something other than elsewhere. Rather, the we who searches for the ca- causal conditions of the dream is himself of such stuff as dreams. Materialism in psychology cannot be countered with individual subjectivism or the private ownership of the self, which is psychological capitalism. For it too is just another materialism. It too posits a transcending ground on which the soul depends and to which dreams ultimately refer. Nor can materialism be adequately met with Christianism, which omits dream, soul, and underworld, as we shall soon see. The pantheistic psychology of the growth and ecology movement is also no answer, for it invites a new cult of the Great Mother that begins with worship of the physical body and themos.
Materialism and psychology can be met, however, with a wholly different way of making life matter, making it count and have sense. I mean here the quality of depth that replaces the physical significance. I mean that nothing matters more than death, and when we start our psychological reflection from there, materialism loses its maternal ground. Materialism begins with neither Democritus nor Marx. Its starting point is the archetype ruling our perspective towards psychic events. That is our view of death, the underworld, and dreams. As long as the archetypal mother dominates our psychology, we cannot help but see dreams from her perspective and read the dream's message as corresponding with her concerns. For instance, the dream corresponds with Hera's concerns with social realities. The problems of husbands and wives and families in the daily world, or the dream corresponds with Sybil's concrete visibilities and is to be read as a mantic source for resolving problems so that life may flourish. The archetypal mother also would strengthen the heroic consciousness the ego by challenging it with huge tasks, as Hera did in so many myths. Dead Roman gladiators left the arena through the gate of Ceres, back to the mother who had sent them out in the first place. One of the ways in which the archetypal mother challenges us shows when we consider the dream to be a riddle that must be untied, puzzled out, solved. When the dream is a riddle, there is a sphinx, and where there is a sphinx, there is a hero eternally married to mother. The great earth mother is a way of doing psychology that attempts to return dreams to nature through naturalistic interpretations. But nature, too, is only a psychological perspective, one of the fantasies of the soul and itself an imaginal topography whose description changes through the centuries in accordance with shifting archetypal dominance. Western history shows many such fantasies. Nature as a clockwork machine, as an enemy, as wild and beautiful, asking to be tamed or to be left unspoilt, virginal, as a harmonious rhythm, as red in tooth and claw, everything competing for survival, as the very face of God. We cannot speak of dreams as nature, or as taking them naturally until we have at least first ascertained which view of nature is being assumed. Another way the Great Mother works on our dreams is by materializing them into the personal world. As Jung pointed out, Psychologies of the mother never can leave the personalistic viewpoint. But the dead are not persons, and the ideola of the underworld are not parts of anybody's personality. They are bloodless, bodiless, boneless images, souls no longer fused with personal lives. A personalistic reduction of the underworld was fundamental to Epicureanism, a major philosophy of Roman civilization. 
Again, we find the effects of Talos. Although death was an important focus to the Epicurean mind in its concern for how to live the good life, the entire underworld was but a moralistic allegory about personal fears of death mainly and desires to overcome it. What Freud later saw as the omnipotence fantasy and immortality drive are already adumbrated. Epicureanism teaches that we can do without the afterlife allegory if we learn to discern our emotions, not taking the fantasies, simulacra, they project as underworld figures to be actualities. Only the material world presented in felt sensations is actually real, and only the sage management coping with this world a sensible aim. To be happy, we must live into a future without illusion, especially the illusions of the supernatural. Epitomized at their worst by the superstitions of the underworld, all is atoms, passing moments. The best we can do is find peaceful retreat in a community of like-minded friends. This rationalistic materialism bears comparison with Freudian dream theory, dream figures as interjections of fears and desires ultimately reducible to sensations of pleasure and pain, and much more widely with the philosophy of death pervading our civilization. To the Epicurean Roman, death this rationalistic materialism bears comparison with Freudian dream theory, dream figures as interjections of fears and desires, ultimately reducible to sensations of pleasure and pain, and much more widely with the philosophy of death pervading our civilization. To the Epicurean Roman, death meant simply the absence of all sense feeling, what is not felt is not real or simply does not exist. His modern equivalent makes a similar statement. Death has no reality for me. Where I am, alive, it isn't, and where or when it is, I am not, dead. So why worry? Get on with life. Rome or here, we find similar concern with practical management of personal life in a universe that is either only chance or only determined, two sides of the same rational material coin. So the most adequate psychology is ego-psychology, alleviated by friendship with like-minded persons, other egocentrics, once the depths beyond the ego are considered its projection. We can draw a conclusion about the materialistic view that derives a psychology of death from Telos rather than from Hades. There is a curious correlation between feelings of reality about the underworld and feelings of value about the soul. It is as if, when we have no vivid imagination of the underworld, a flattening takes place, even a depersonalization that must be made good by Epicurean community and friendship.
or what today is called relating. The less underworld, the less depth, and the more horizontally spread out becomes one's life. The materialistic view ends in a kind of void. The very hall of Hades now only a spiritual vacuum. For its myths and images have been called irrational simulacra, fantasies of fear and desire. The end is depression, and that suggests that the pervading, though masked, depression in our civilization is partly a response of the soul to its lost underworld. When the depressed person goes into therapy to analyze the unconscious, he may rediscover there, thanks to Freud, the underworld again. Depth psychology, despite professing scientific materialism and paying hourly homage to the Great Mother, nonetheless performs the chief function of religion. Connecting the individual by means of practical ritual with the realm of death. In sum, the battle for the deliverance from the mother occurs each time we can move through to a less personal, less natural, less moralized, less related and social conception. The opus contra naturam by which psychological work can be defined is thus at first an opus contra maternum, not the personal mother, which would be again her snare, but the materialistic philosophies of naturalism and personalism. To free the psychic realm from her natural mind requires first distinguishing the underworld of Hades from Talos and the underground. Oppositionalism. The next barrier across our way into the underworld perspective is our habitual thinking in opposites. Oppositionalism. This ism, like any other, is an ideological frame imposed upon life by our minds and is usually unconscious to our minds. Even when we are somewhere, somewhat aware of oppositionalism, as I am trying to be in this book, it is nevertheless so bedrock to the thought of our culture from the pre-Socratics, Aristotle and Neoplatonism, through scholasticism to Kant, Hegel, and information theory, that we will not be able to escape its underlying influence. This book too falls often into op opposing pairs like night world and day world, underworld and upper world, psychical and natural, and the like. We cannot move to another planet with another universe of discourse, or even to another cultural habit. Since we must remain where oppositionalism is in our very ground, the best we can do is enlighten ourselves about it, hoping for two things, to shift op oppositions so that we may be less caught by them and more able to use them, and to find out what archetypal perspective is most served by this ism.
that is, for what sort of mind wrestling with what sort of question are oppositions necessary? The logic of oppositions and all their kinds, contradictories, contraries, polarities, complementaries, whether the opposites are formal only or material as well, and then whether the pair of terms together are exhaustive, all this as well as the metaphysical structure of dualism that seems both to require and imply oppositional logic extends far beyond an essay on the dream and the underworld. Yet, oppositionalism does bear on this essay. Because our topic has been conceived by Freud, and even more by Jung in terms of opposites, in order to move dream theory from their positions, we need to work through their oppositions, especially the Jungian. Jung's psychology is thoroughly oppositional. Without significant exception, all his major concepts, eros, logos, ego-self, introversion, extroversion, first half, second half, image, instinct, individual, collective, conscious, unconscious, ethics, morals, anima, animos, and still more, arranged in pairs. These oppositions are material and functional, but not logical. That means opposition in Jungian psychology has to do with the content of terms and how they work. Introversion, introversion is opposed to extroversion in its nature and function, not merely formally. Attention of substance operates between the terms, not a logic of contradiction. So, it is a mistake to treat Jung's opposites with logical tools, as if he were making logical moves. Because his oppositions are not logically exclusive contradictories, anima does not exclude animus, and we can be conscious and unconscious at the same time, and so on. That is why Jung so often rejects either-or thinking, in preference to both. His pairs are antagonistic and complementary at the same time, but never contradictories. In this sense, Jung is more a follower of the romantic use of opposites. He sees them as constitutive of things more than modes of arguing about things. He would less likely employ oppositions in an Aristotelian scholastic manner and more likely agree with Coleridge, who speaks of a law which reigns through all nature. The law of polarity, or the manifestation of one power by opposite forces, and who also said, there is, strictly speaking, no proper opposition but between two polar forces of one and the same power. Here, oppositionalism is mainly a vision of reality, a universal law, and only secondarily an epistemological procedure of ordering. Jung refers his grounding principle to Heraclitus's doctrine of enantiodromia, 
by which Hume understands the regulative function of opposites. The word itself means counter, enantio, running, dromia, which Hume adapts to mean resistance. If you go far enough with any one movement, a counter movement will set in. Even the clash of opposing directions is understood in the manner of Heraclitus. The way up and the way down are one and the same, or as Coleridge says, the manifestation of one power by opposite forces. Hume's whole opus is an elaboration of this view. As Hume's psychology extended, so did his notion of enantiodromia. In fact, his analytical psychology speaks of opposites in four main ways. Conversion into the opposite, regulation of one of a pair by its opposite, union of opposites, identity of opposites. The third, and especially the fourth, are the main theme of Hume's alchemical psychology. Now we come to the dream. It too is approached by means of opposites, for the dream is a compensation. Compensation is the one overall construct which Jung applies to dreams, much as Freud's overall construct of wish fulfillment. Because it is a compensation, a dream is always partial, one-sided, unbalanced. To be comprehended, it calls for the other member of the pair, the day-world context, the ego position, the collective situation, the preceding dream series. Theory of compensation forces the dream across the bridge back into links with others, outside itself, elsewhere. A dream is not complete, per se. This dream has consequences in dream analysis. If the dream is incomplete, it is left to analysis to compensate it. So, the Jungian analyst looks within the dream for figures and symbols that will balance out the one-sidedness which his Jungian training assures he will espy. Positions taken by the dream ego will be compensated by oppositions. If the ego figure is passive, the analyst will search for a strengthening shadow. If the ego figure acts aggressively and self-sure, the analyst attempts to sensitize it with other, more feminine symbols in the dream.